We're going to be in John 5 this morning as we continue our series on the Sabbath. You know, time is a strange thing. One of the great minds of the previous century was Albert Einstein, whose theory of special relativity implies that time moves relative to the observer. So for someone standing still, time will move at one pace, but for someone moving very fast, they will experience time more slowly than the person who is not moving. This applies more to people traveling in space, really, than here on Earth. Uh, so, for example, astronauts on the International Space Station have been shown to age slightly slower than people on Earth. It's kind of crazy. Uh, but in that case, the difference is like fractions of seconds. It's not dramatic. But we have observed that time moves faster on the moon than it does on Earth. And if we were to consider someone approaching a black hole, as they entered what is known as the event horizon, time would slow down dramatically. What might seem maybe to be a single second near a black hole could be a thousand years for someone on Earth. So have I lost you yet? <laughs> when it comes to Earth, we are always spinning, right? This means that some of us are in daylight while others are in darkness at any given moment. It's why we have time zones and things like daylight saving time, which is coming up this next week. Now, according to current federal law, daylight savings time begins on the second Sunday in March and runs through the first Sunday in November. Germany was the first country to ever adopt such an idea doing so on May 1st, 1916, during World War I, as a way to conserve fuel. And their relative success caused the rest of Europe to do the same. The United States held out until March 19th, 1918. And it was highly unpopular, and it was abolished immediately after the war. Nobody liked it. Still don't, as far as I can tell. Uh, but then on February 9th, 1942, President Franklin Roosevelt instituted a year-round DST, which he claimed was for wartime. And this lasted until September 30th, 1945. And it finally became a standard with the passage of what's called the Uniform Time Act of 1966, which mandated the daylight saving time along with the time zones that we have now, the different ones that separate our country. Now, interestingly, Arizona and Hawaii opted out of that entire thing, and they don't observe daylight savings time at all. Uh, although, according to their website, and I looked it up, time in Arizona, as in all U.S. states, is regulated by the United States Department of Transportation, as well as by state and tribal law. I don't know. Uh, the United States time zone map is a strange thing if you've ever looked at kind of where it is. It's not like straight lines and corridors. Um, Arizona's on the same time as California, Nevada, most of Oregon, Washington, and part of Idaho during one part of the year. It is. It's true. Idaho. It's strange. 
During the winter, Arizona is on the same time as New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, parts of Idaho, Oregon, North Dakota. Like there's just bits and pieces that are involved. Uh, but also El Paso, if you can imagine that, because El Paso's in that time zone. Now my point in bringing all this up is that time is a weird thing if you stop to think about it. Uh, it's a weird thing. We all kind of take it for granted as being just normal. We ask, what time is it? We, we look at our watches. We, but it's only normal because we see it that way. As we will see in this morning's passage, what seems to be the same time can be viewed from different perspectives and understood in distinctive ways. And what we're going to uh, see is that Jesus was operating in a completely different time zone than that of the religious leaders in this case. And I think in all the cases involved with Sabbath. So, uh, the time zone that he was in, it brought the future into being in the present. And that meant that everything that had been promised was beginning to come true already wasn't fulfilled, but it was already starting. So we're going to look at John 5. We're going to read 1 through 18. If you will follow along with me as we read. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So Jesus said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not the Jews, I'm sorry, said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he, warned, he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? And the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. May God bless the reading of his word. Okay, so we need to address something real quick. Um, some of our Bibles may omit verse 4 
here. If you look, uh, mine did in the reading, it omitted it. Uh, there's a general disagreement about whether verse 4 was original to the text or added by someone at a later date. Because we don't have any of the originals where we don't know. So there's this sort of, you know, uh, disagreement. I'm including it today. I want to include it because it helps us, I think, understand the superstitious nature of the people and the pool that we're talking about. Um, and so, real quick, I think I have it in here. Maybe I don't. Well, let's see. Okay, so in verse 4, it would say, The people were waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So that's verse 4, the one that a lot of them kind of omit. But I think it, I, I think it helps give us some context so that we understand kind of what's going on with the stirring of the pool and all that. Um, but I do, I do insist that it's superstitious, and we'll get to that. So, um, Jesus and the disciples, they show up in Jerusalem and, uh, for this feast that is, that is taking place. And they entered town by a place called the Pool of Bethesda, which was on the south side of, of old Jerusalem. It's on the very south entrance. And as we see in the text, this particular pool had some, uh, all the superstitious ideas attached to it. Namely, that an angel would sort of stir up the waters every so often. And then when it did, if you got in first, you could be healed. This kind of thing is still incredibly common. There are certain places that are thought to have miraculous healing power. There are pools, there are statues, there are shrines, there are chapels, there are sanctuaries that are reported to have been connected with miraculous healings. There are sarcophagus that apparently have miraculous healing powers. There are uh, kind of mummified bodies that have been said to have miraculous powers. It, it's, it's non-stop. If you look, it's everywhere. Right? But here's the thing. None of those places or things has healing power. None of them. People may have been healed there, but the power of the healing wasn't attached to the place or the water, or the stone, or whatever else. Because that's not how healing works. Healing comes from God. So wherever people have been legitimately healed, it isn't the location that has the power. It is the Lord who is doing the healing. Now hopefully that's clear. So when we see Jesus and his disciples walking by this pool that supposedly has miraculous healing powers, we find a contrast at work. <coughs> Pardon me. Is it the place or is it the Lord? And I think Jesus makes the answer clear. But he does so in an interesting way. 
In the middle of all these blind, lame, paralyzed people, Jesus saw one guy who had been there 38 years. And this is the person that he approached. In verse 5, the Greek word used to describe the man is asthenia, which means weakness or frailty. In other words, this man had been without strength for 38 years, without the ability to do normal, everyday tasks, without the ability to move freely on his own. In a culture where people were identified by what they could produce, this man could produce nothing. And there, he was therefore generally considered a nobody. Not much, I think, has changed in that area. Our culture still carries similar tendencies toward people with various disabilities. We see in verse 6 that uh, Jesus knew that the man had been there a long time. Uh, it seems pretty clear from the story here that Jesus knew all about this man, right? Which brings us to what Jesus said. He looked at the man and asked, Do you want to be healed? What kind of question is that? Can you imagine being practically immobile for that long and then someone asking you that question? Can you imagine how the man must have felt about not only his condition, but his identity? Jesus had to know the answer to that question. But that's not why he was asking the question. He wasn't asking it for his own sake. He was asking for the man. Think about it. What Jesus was really asking him was pretty complex. As complex as his situation and thoughts and feelings about himself in that situation. Everything about this man for 38 years had been a matter of his disability. And the resulting identity that that gave him, or, or lack of identity that that gave him. Jesus wasn't merely asking him if he was ready to walk again. He was asking him if he was ready for everything else that came with the healing. Was he ready to walk? To bear the burden of responsibility for whatever actions he took next? Was he ready to once again become a productive part of his community? Was he ready to let go of his disabled identity? If we stop to think it through, these are all fair questions. And in many cases, people may want to be healed without ever really considering the rest of it. When it comes to the various things that we need to be healed from, have we really considered the full implications of our healing? Of what it means to be whole? Because it doesn't simply free us to go do whatever we want. I think this is at least part of what Jesus is getting at here. Knowing very well that it was the Sabbath, the question Jesus asked amounted to much more than, do you want to be able to walk again? Even if the man didn't fully realize it. And if we look at his answer, it seems like he didn't, because he didn't say yes. He didn't say, of course I want to walk again. He offered an excuse for why he was still in the situation he was in. And this is something I think we need to pay close attention to because 
it seems like something we all deal with at some level or another. When it comes to the thing or the things that keep us from living up to our full potential in Christ, do we really want to be healed? Or are we maybe a bit comfortable right where we are? Am I ready to surrender my anger to God, or would I rather hang on to it? Am I willing to be healed and get past some of the trauma that I have experienced in life, or is it still working as a good excuse for me? Those are a couple of my own issues, but I'm guessing everyone here has some of their own. I'm not going to ask you what yours are, but Jesus certainly will. And it will sound just like the question he asked this man. Do you want to be healed? Are you ready for what's next? For what comes with being made whole? There's also an element of Sabbath involved here. By healing this man on the Sabbath, he was inviting him into a new experience of time. In the way things were, Sabbath was bound up in the rules on top of rules that we've talked about throughout this series. And as we've seen, the religious leaders used these rules on top of rules to exercise control over the people. Jesus was inviting this man out from under that way of living. And we know this because he told him to pick up his mat and walk. And this didn't go against any of the statements about Sabbath in the Torah, but it did go against something known as halakha, which is a list of 39 categories of activity prohibited on the Sabbath developed by the religious leaders over time. Now the list was developed to clarify any questions surrounding the application of the Torah statements. We've talked about this. The Torah statements are they're kind of vague. It's just rest, don't work. That's all it really says. But apparently carrying a mat on the Sabbath falls under the final category, which is transferring between domains. Can't do that. That counts as work. By not only healing this man, but asking him to take his mat with him as he left, Jesus was unveiling a Sabbath where transferring between domains was not against Torah, but part of it. It was not bound up in the rules on top of rules that had been added. It was a Sabbath made for man. And it was a subtle sign that Jesus was living in a completely different time zone than the Jewish religious leaders. Now John had already hinted at this in John 1.17 when he stated, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's something different happening now. And Christians often get this whole idea twisted up. And we get tangled up in the legalism and morality of faith and we miss the relationship that this is calling for. We cling to the codes and the doctrines while ignoring God. And this is what the Pharisees were doing. 
It offered them a means to power and control over others, which in turn offered them a means to wealth and status, a chance to live above the measly peasant way of life that most Jewish people were afforded under Roman rule. They had navigated the system. They had found some loopholes and wormed through them. They had dragged the Torah with them by using it to manipulate the people. And the dangerous thing about this is that it's still possible. It still happens. We can still be tempted to live in that old time zone that they lived in. The one where the things of God are a means to an end for us. Or we can opt out. We can do what Arizona and Hawaii did and skip the time change altogether. We can choose to live in the moment with Jesus rather than living by rules on top of rules without him. Now maybe I'm stretching the metaphor too thin. That's certainly possible. But as we're going to see, there's still plenty of ways that it fits. So after the religious leaders questioned the man about carrying his mat and who healed him, Jesus bumped into him again in the temple. This isn't just the beginning of, this is, sorry, this is just the beginning of the story for this man. Just the first few steps away from his disability, and where do we find him? He was up, walking in the temple on the Sabbath. If we go back to the question Jesus asked him, we see that this is the true beginning of the answer. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to participate in God's Sabbath rest in the temple with the rest of the community of believers? We can very easily ask ourselves these same questions. As the healing rest of God's Sabbath continues to pour into our lives through the Holy Spirit, don't we find ourselves more interested in celebrating and enjoying it together in worship? Now I want to be clear that it's not up to any of us who is and who is not part of God's kingdom. But it seems crazy to imagine someone who is not wanting to gather with others who are. This man that Jesus healed was in the temple. That's no small detail. It's a, it's a street sign. It's pointing the way to the new time zone, a place where we encounter Jesus just as this man did, where Jesus meets us in worship, where he's happy to see us, where he has instructions for us. Look at what Jesus said to the man in verse 14. He said, see you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus was genuinely happy to see the man in the temple worship. I think that's pretty clear in the text. But the real question that he asked him still lingered. Do you want to be healed? And here Jesus connected the dots, saying, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So this seems to imply that the disability the man had had been a result of some sin that he had committed. As if he wasn't born disabled, he wasn't always disabled, but at some point he did something 
that resulted in him becoming disabled. We can speculate about what that might have been, but that's not important here. John would have told us, and he doesn't. The main idea here is to see that Jesus was telling him, don't go back. If we're listening, Jesus is still saying this to us. Do you want to be healed? Don't go back to what you were doing. Don't go back to the same old way. Don't keep doing what you have always done. Leave the past behind. Man, we have such a hard time with this. In so many different ways, too. We hoard the past in our minds, in our memories, in our habits, in our rituals. And there are some good things that we need to hold on to. The problem is we tend to choose things based on nostalgia rather than the leading of the Holy Spirit. Or on a more profound level, we tend to hold on to sins that Jesus forgave 2,000 years ago. We beat ourselves up over stuff that was buried in the tomb in a completely different time zone. We don't live in the world back then. We live in a world where God's Sabbath rest is available to all because Jesus has come and opened the door. We've talked about this before in terms of the good shepherd and the sheep gate. But what we need to see now is that for anyone who trusts in Jesus and makes their way through that door, in a sense, we become time travelers because we leave the past behind with all its promise of sin and darkness and death and we join Jesus in his glorious present where we get to experience light and love and life. All the things that began to take place in the time zone of the resurrection. The time zone that the Jewish religious leaders should have known about. They had studied the scriptures. They knew the signs of Messiah. But instead of welcoming and celebrating God's Sabbath when it finally arrived, they rejected Jesus and they held on to the past. They preferred rules on top of rules. The old way, the old time zone, and it's imperative that we let go of what is behind us and not be like that. We cannot move forward into what God has for us if we are dragging our pasts along with us. Like the man by the pool and all his excuses, Jesus is asking us, do you want to be healed? Part of what he means is, are you ready for what's next? For what comes with being made whole? Are you ready to join with other believers in the mission of this congregation? The mission of making disciples. Because even though God's Sabbath rest is ours, and it's ours in Christ and the work is done, 
into it. We have to move forward. Look at verses 15 through 18. The man went and told the religious leaders that Jesus had healed him. He's already testifying. He's already an, an apostle, uh, one who has sent the message, right? Jesus has healed me. Jesus has made me whole. So he goes and tells them that Jesus is the one who healed him and told him to carry his mat. And we're told that because of this, Jesus, they were persecuting Jesus for doing these things on the Sabbath, right? But look at what Jesus said in response to this persecution that they're throwing at him. My father is working until now, or maybe even until now, and I am working. We could easily spend a good while digging into this simple statement. But I want to bring out just a couple of things connected with our study of the Sabbath here. I'm not even going to bother with going into detail about how they were perfectly willing to persecute Jesus on the Sabbath and plan his execution on the Sabbath. Their hypocrisy is clear. The key to understanding what Jesus said here is fairly straightforward. Do we believe that God takes a day off every week? Maybe an even better question is, do we, does God do good every day except the Sabbath day? It's really kind of absurd if you stop to think about it. When the Lord took a step back on the seventh day of creation to celebrate and enjoy creation, it didn't mean that he stopped working forever. In fact, we see God right back at work in Genesis 3, butchering an animal to clothe Adam and Eve after they took from the tree of knowledge and realized they were naked. Jesus made it clear that the Father had been at work ever since for the good of his creation and he also made it clear that he too was hard at work right alongside the father doing what he saw the father doing in a sense this foreshadowed what he would accomplish in the days ahead especially through his death burial and resurrection but he was also talking about being active instead of being passive God is not passive. God is active. God is a dynamic force for good. If we claim to follow Jesus, then the straightforward message we find here is really simple. Jesus was working in the same way he saw the Father working, which, which means we should be as well. Sabbath is meant for us. It's meant to be restful. But it's also an opportunity for us to bring good into this world. To offer hope and healing. To bring light and love and life to those that we are around. Now that may mean people we bump into here at worship. Hopefully it does. It may mean people that we see at the restaurant during lunch. It may mean people that we meet along the way during the week. People who are in need. What do we have to offer them? Well, what did James write? James 2, 15 through 16, he said, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
We need to understand Sabbath as rest. But we also need to understand it as rest for all, not just for us at the expense of others. We need to take a good long look at what Jesus did in these Sabbath passages and how he interacted with the people around him, how he continuously included them, brought people in, helped them share in the Sabbath. We need to understand the difference between the old way and the old time zone of the religious leaders with their rules on top of rules and codes and doctrines and all that versus the way of God's kingdom that emphasizes relationship over rules. We need to leave the past behind and follow Jesus into this new time zone where we experience God's Sabbath rest as an active force in and through our lives. And once we do, we need to never change our clocks again. We pray with me.